You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. One thousand nine hundred and forty-eight degrees Fahrenheit. That's really hot. To put it in perspective, the average campfire is about half as hot, about nine hundred degrees. One thousand nine hundred and forty-eight degrees Fahrenheit is the melting point for pure gold. Now, as you probably know, when when gold is mined, it doesn't come out. Um, of the ground, pristine, shiny, 24 karat gold ready for use. It comes out of the ground with impurities and all sorts of other things attached to it that need to be removed. This is the process of refining. Now in our modern times, we've come up with a lot of different ways to refine gold. We, we have uh, uh, chemical processes and electrical processes, but in ancient times... You had to melt it. It, it. All gold was refined by fire. And so what would happen is the metalsmith, or refiner, would take this unrefined gold and it would put it in this refining pot called a crucible. And then, then there, there'd be built a, a, a fiery furnace underneath it to, 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 to heat up the crucible. And when the gold reached 1,948 degrees Fahrenheit, the gold would melt in the crucible. And what would happen is all these other impurities that, that weren't melting, they would, they would rise to the top and then the refiner could skim them off the top. And then it would cool and then they would do it again. And this, this would happen over and over and over each time bringing this gold to more and more purity. And how would he know when it reached this, this point? You know, there's not um, modern technology. And so what the refiner was looking for as this process was repeated over and over is that he wanted to be able to see his image in the surface of the gold. That's when he would know that the process of refinement had reached the point of purity. Now the biblical writers pick up on this metaphor as it relates to suffering. There's a lot of passages on it. I'm only going to give you a few here this morning. In Isaiah chapter 48 verse 10, he's speaking about the people of God. And this is the Lord speaking. He says, Behold, I have refined you. But not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. So when God seeks to refine his people, he does it through the furnace of affliction. Proverbs 17.3. The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold. And the Lord tests hearts. Right there we see the Lord showing us that the testing happens just like The crucible and the furnace for gold and silver. Zechariah 13 verse 9a. I will put this third, talking about a group of people, into the fire. This remnant, this this preserved people. And refine them as one refines silver. And test them as gold is tested. We already saw this in 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter writes, verse 6 and 7. And this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested, we use that word testing again, genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Now this morning as we open up chapter 4 verses 12 to 19, Peter picks up on that topic of suffering and drawing on this metaphor of the refiner's fire from chapter 1. Chapter 1 is kind of like listing out, it's like a table of contents of all the things that Peter is going to talk about. And he already told us we're going to get to this topic of suffering. And now this is his longest treatise of suffering in the book. And just like a refiner uses extreme heat to melt the gold so that uh, they can remove the dross and the impurities, just like the refiner repeats this process until he can see his own image reflected in the molten surface, so God uses suffering, be it trials, afflictions, persecutions, as the crucible to refine and purify his church until the image of Christ is reflected in us. And this morning, First Peter has five things to teach us about suffering. Five lessons that are meant to teach us about the nature of suffering so that we can faithfully walk with God through pain and suffering. Now notice I didn't say Peter's going to give us five lessons on how to avoid suffering in your life. Five lessons on how to mitigate it so that you never experience pain and suffering. Or five ways to just be so strong so stoic that you never experience the pain of suffering. No, the Bible never encourages that kind of stoicism. The Bible never lies to you that you can avoid suffering. In fact, the Bible never treats something as serious as suffering with trite and pat answers. Now these five lessons will not mitigate suffering out of your life, nor will they make you invincible that you never feel pain. But that's not our goal this morning. Our goal this morning is to learn about the nature of suffering, God's purpose for it, and how we can respond so that our faith can be matured. Or another way uh, to, to borrow in this metaphor, that our faith would be refined. Our goal is faithful endurance through suffering until God accomplishes the work of redemption in us. So we've got five lessons to cover this morning. Let's begin with verse 12. And here's our first lesson. God is for you, not against you. That's the first thing you have to learn. God is for you, not against you. Look at verse 12. Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Now when we experience suffering... Our initial gut reaction is to ask why. And that's a good question. It's a a good and natural thing to ask why. Why is this happening to me? But oftentimes there can be this this line of reasoning that begins. Because, you know, we're good theologians. We go, well, hold on now. God is sovereign, isn't he? He's, He's absolutely, completely in control. Nothing happens under the sun apart from God's sovereign control and providential will. So we think, well, well, I am suffering right now, and God is, is in complete and sovereign control. He can do anything that pleases him. So isn't it true then that he could have stopped this suffering? Couldn't he have organized and orchestrated all of time, all of history to make it such that I didn't experience this right now? And the answer is yes. God could have, but he chose not to. And so then you go, well, that must mean that God is against me. And then, in those dark places, it quickly devolves from there. And then we think, well, if it's true that God is against me, 
then what did I do to deserve this? What have I done that God is now punishing me with this trial, with this suffering? What sin did I commit that God is now holding over me? And then we start to think, well, what do I need to do then so that God will love me more than he does now? Because apparently he's not loving me. What do I need to do so that I can earn a better place in God's economy and God's family so that this suffering will go away? Have you ever gone down that road of thinking? I think if we're honest, we've, we've all gone down that road. And the pain, and it, when, it, when it's hurting, it's very easy to go down that line of thinking. Have you ever felt like God was against you? Have you ever come to the conclusion that your suffering must be some punishment for something you've done and is therefore conclusive evidence that God doesn't love you and that God is against you? Friends, this line of thinking is anti-gospel. It's the opposite of good news. It's bad news because it's totally based on a lie. This says... So this anti-gospel is this. I am accepted or rejected based on my performance. So if I feel like I'm receiving blessing in my life, I'm being accepted and it must therefore be a result of the things that I've done. I've done good things and therefore I've been rewarded. In a lot of ways, that's how our society works, right? You do good things at work and you get rewarded with a promotion or more pay, right? You do bad things, you get demoted or fired, right? It's just built into the very fabric of our uh, DNA as a society. It's based on merit. You do good, you receive good. You do bad, you receive bad. It's just thinking that God's love for me is directly connected to my works, And into these anti-gospel tendencies that lurk in the vulnerable places in our heart, Peter says, no, that is not true. Did you notice that first word in verse 12? Beloved. It's really easy and tempting for us to jump past first words and sentences. But I would encourage you, there's not a, a single trivial word in the entire Bible. Especially one like this. Beloved. You are beloved. That's your name. That's who you are. This is actually, uh, Peter is giving an address. Like, it'd be like saying your name. And he says, beloved, that's your name. It's the nominal or noun form of the verb agape. If you've been around church for a while, you've heard that word agape. It's this deeply connected kind of love. And so he takes this word that you use when you're wanting to show deeply connected kind of love. And he says, that's your name. You know why? Because you are loved by God. You are dearly loved, prized, and valued by God. Friends, listen to me. You do not earn your acceptance by, uh, from God. Your works, the things you do, do not earn anything. God's love for us is not tethered to your performance. And that's just one of those truths that you have to remind yourself of every single day. God's love for you is not tethered to your performance. The reason God loves you is because he made a decision in eternity past to love you no matter what. Eternity past. You you weren't even created yet. Creation wasn't even created yet. 
And in that time, before time, whatever, we, we don't even have words for that time. That's when God decided to love you. Listen to how Moses explains the reason for God's love to his covenant people. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6 to 8. So he's talking to the covenant people of God. And he says, you are a holy, a people holy to the Lord your God. This is Moses speaking on behalf of God. And he says, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And then he gives the reasons. And here's what he says. It wasn't because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For actually you were the fewest of the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. And is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Did you notice the profound thing God, that he just said right there? He said, God loves you because he loves you. He says, any deeper than that and, 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 your, and your minds will just explode. You can't, you, can't hand, you can't get into the mind of God deeper than that. God loves you because he loves you. That's the reason. There's no other reason. Nothing you do Nothing you don't do, God loves you because he decided to love you. You don't cause it, you don't deserve it, you can't lose it. That's God's love. He just decided to set the full force of his love on you. For no other reason that we can fathom except he just decided to do it. In other words, you have nothing to do with earning or losing God's love. He just loves you. And you go, well, how do I know that? What proof do I have of that? Well, he proved it by sending Jesus to love you and me to the point of death, even death on the cross. When we did our, our, uh, our walk through uh, the gospel of John, I'd read John many times, but preaching through it's a different thing. And I decided my favorite verse in the whole gospel of John is John 13, verse 1. That's what he says. When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, which Jesus knew he was going to the cross... Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. My favorite verse in the whole gospel. When he knew, okay, it's time. Like the time is set now for me to go to the cross and die. He said, I'm, I, I, have, I have loved them and now I'm going to love them to the end. What is that end? Dying on a cross for our sins in our place. He loved his own and he loved them to the end. So hear me. The suffering you've experienced in your life, the suffering you're experiencing maybe right now, the suffering you will experience, none of it is a sign that God doesn't love you. None of it. Your suffering is not some cosmic sign that you need to get your act together. I mean, sometimes we do need to get our act together. But, but those two things aren't the same thing. Your health issues, financial struggles, marriage woes, problems at work, relational strains, religious opposition, fill in the blank. It doesn't matter what you put in that blank. None of it is proof of anything except that you live in a broken and fallen world. That's what it proves. It proves you, you live in a broken world. And there's ample evidence for that. It is not proof that God doesn't love you. God's love for you is as fierce as it was in eternity past. Now think about that. In eternity past, before anything was ever created, the, 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 the degree, the nature, the force of God's love, which is his very character and nature, it is as strong as it was then for you now. Nothing you've done or haven't done has changed it one slightest bit. Right now, 
God is for you, not against you. His love has not wavered or waned. And right now, he is giving his full attention and direction to finishing his work of redemption. He is right now committed, more than you're committed, to seeing your faith mature so that you're transformed from one degree of glory to another. All of that is wrapped up in that word, beloved. That's what that means. Romans 8, 31 to 39. It's just one of those chapters in the Bible that we should just all probably memorize. And Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Here's that proof language again. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Meaning you have nothing to do with that. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died and more than that was raised who is at the right hand of God who is indeed interceding for us. So what is the translation of that? No one can bring a charge against you because Jesus has justified you by his life, death, and resurrection. And right now Jesus is your advocate and your lawyer and there is not a better one out there. So he says, well, who can separate us then from the love of God? Shall tribulation, that's suffering, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, dangerness, danger, or the sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So Paul basically says, like list everything that could possibly make you think that God doesn't love you. And he says, no, and all these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then he, this crescendo, for I am sure neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, anything else in all creation, that's everything, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So here's that first lesson. Your suffering is not evidence of anything except the reality that we live in a broken world. Suffering is just a constant reminder that things are not the way they're supposed to be. God is for you, not against you. I love how Sally Lloyd-Jones reminds us in the Jesus Storybook Bible. God loves you with a never-breaking, never-stopping, always and forever love. God is for you, not against you. Now look with me at lesson two. Lesson two. Suffering is purposeful, not meaningless. Suffering is purposeful, not meaningless. Go back to verse 12. There's more words there. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Now, Peter is being a good pastor here. Sometimes being a good pastor is telling people hard truth. And telling people hard truth that you are going to suffer, that you should expect it, that doesn't get you on Oprah's book club list. Telling people they should expect suffering as a normal part of life does not fill former NBA stadiums in Houston. But Peter isn't interested in being popular. He's interested in telling people the truth. So he says, beloved, here's the truth. Until Christ returns, you should expect suffering. I mean, can you imagine if if, if Jesus had come back in the technological, if Jesus had come, his first coming in the technological age and, and scripture was like Instagram, you know, Peter is, is putting out on Instagram, hey, uh, be a Christian, you're going to suffer. Like no one's following that account. But Peter's saying that's just the truth. You need to know it. You should expect suffering. Do not be surprised. Don't think it's strange. Suffering, be it trials, tribulations, persecutions, it's normal. That's what normal is. 
Notice he didn't say, don't be surprised if suffering comes upon you. He said, don't be surprised when it comes upon you. It's not a matter of if, but when. You cannot mitigate or navigate suffering out of your life. It's impossible. It's inevitable. You might be better at it than some people, but nobody is exempt from that. It is the great equalizer. You can find common ground with every single person who has ever lived because suffering is, is, is uh, normal to every single person. And Peter says not only should we expect it, but we actually need to know it's a part of God's will. It's part of his plan. Now notice, I didn't say God just allows it. Like it, it's happening outside of him and God's like, well, I can probably do something with that. No, no, it goes it goes much more forceful than that. Some of you might have thought I misspoke when I said suffering is a part of God's will. But I didn't misspeak. The words are right here. Verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now, we're going to cover the rest of verse 19 at the end. But for right now, I, I, I want to put these two things together, the bookends of, 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 of this section. He says, expect it. And oh, by the way, it's part of God's will. Suffering, the suffering we experience is part of his plan and sovereign will. You can't get around it. It's just right there, plain in the text, that God has chosen for us to suffer. But I would argue that that's actually good news. See, if suffering were outside of God's will, here's what that would mean. It would mean that there's some kind of force or person out there competing for God's sovereignty. And it would mean that we have no guarantee that God is going to ultimately use our suffering for our good and his glory. At the end of the day, suffering always serves the purposes of God. See, if he's sovereign, if, if it's part of his plan, then it's subservient to him. Now, what are those purposes? Well, this is where I think Peter's picking up on that imagery from chapter 1 about the crucible and the gold that's tested through fire. He's using that same language of, of testing here. And so just like a refiner uses extreme heat to smelt gold so that the impurities can be skimmed off the surface, God uses suffering to draw out the impurities of our faith so that it can be purified. In other words, the, 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 the everyday rhythms of, of life, the times when we're not experiencing suffering, there's not enough heat to draw out those things. When everything is going fine, well, and good, those those places in your heart, the things that need to, to come up to the surface, they, they never do. It, it's like when I pray to the Lord, Lord, would you help me be more patient? It, how, how does he do that? Well, by putting me in places where I have to be patient, meaning impatient things, where I'm, where I'm, where I'm put in the crucible to where I have to fight the impatience and the pride of my heart to learn patience. James puts it this way, James 1, 3, and 4, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let the steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So you, wanna, you want your faith to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James says it comes through the testing of your faith. Again, this is that same language, the testing language, not like an academic test, but a, but a heat test. The heat and pressure of suffering is what draws out the pride in our heart so that it can be burned off. It draws out, suffering draws out our tendency towards self-reliance. 
suffering, the, the, the extreme heat and pressure of it reveals our idols, the things we look to for meaning and purpose and worth besides God, and it reveals how flammable and fragile they are. See, in the end, suffering is not meant to destroy you, but to purify you so that you come through it better, stronger, and more like Christ. It's in that same analogy. You would think 1,948 degrees is going to destroy gold, but guess what? It doesn't. It's indestructible in that sense. You can apply heat upon heat upon heat. It's not going anywhere. But everything else around it is what gets destroyed and, 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 and what's revealed so that it can be removed. And our souls are just like that. The extreme heat will not destroy you. It's being overseen, sovereignly willed by a loving and caring God. See, because our suffering is ordained and controlled by God, the destructive and dark nature of suffering is used against itself. So that ultimately, all suffering serves God's redemptive purposes. Charles Haddon Spurgeon once preached this. It's worth quoting at length. It was one of God's laws written in the book of Numbers 31, chapter, uh, 31st chapter, 23rd verse. Everything that can stand the fire, you shall pass through the fire and it shall be clean. He says, it's a law of nature, a law of grace, that everything that can stand the fire, everything that is precious must be tried. Be sure of this. That which will not stand the trial is not worth having. Then he goes on to give some examples. Would I preach in this house? He had a beautiful church. If I thought it would not stand the trial of a large congregation, but might one of these days totter and break down? Would anyone forming a railway construct a bridge that would not stand a trial of the weight that might run across it? No, we have things that would stand the trial. Otherwise, we should think of them of no value. That which I can trust one hour but found it, find it broken the next when I want it the most is of little use to me. But because you, Christian, are of value, saints, because you are gold, therefore you must be tried from the very fact that you are valuable you must be made to pass through the furnace friends we are loved and incredibly valuable to the lord and that's why we must go through the fire our suffering is never meaningless it's never wasted it's always purposeful and always profitable regardless of our ability to know its purpose and meaning in the moment in the moment you may not be able to see what's happening. But on the back end of it, you can look back usually and see it. We may not see its use in real time, in the moment. But that's where we have to go back to that first word, beloved. And put all of our hope and, and, and trust in that word that I am loved. That's the truth that we hang our souls on. That we are loved by God and believe his word beyond what our eyes can see. Friends, Peter is pastoring us this morning, giving us good doctrine to store up in our hearts for the day of suffering. Just like I prayed this morning. You may not be in that moment of suffering right now, but put all of this good truth, store it up so that when the, the, the trial of suffering comes, that's what comes out. That good gospel. Lesson one, God is for us, not against us. Lesson two, suffering is purposeful, not meaningless. Third lesson, rejoice in suffering, don't despair look at verse 13 
But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So this next lesson, Peter says, reject that impulse towards despair and instead rejoice. And just in case you think Peter's going rogue here, he's not. James says the same thing. James 1, 2. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. Even Jesus said, Matthew 5, 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now here's what they don't mean. They don't mean be happy or be excited or enjoy suffering. That's not what that means to rejoice. Remember, rejoice is just an active experience of joy. And biblical joy is not circumstantial. It's not based on the circumstances of your life. Biblical joy always goes deeper than that. True joy is birthed out of good theology. True joy is a settled optimism based on the reality of what God has done for us in Christ and what he's promised to do for us in the days to come. So in other words, biblical joy is first rooted in the past of looking back on all that God has done. And biblical joy looks forward knowing that God will, his word has promised all these blessings for us. And you let both the past and the future inform the present. See, joy is not a denial of pain. Joy doesn't downplay suffering. You can have joy and be in tears at the same exact moment. Biblical joy combines faith and hope and allows it to inform our present circumstances. Biblical joy recognizes that while my present moment may be crippling, it may be difficult, I choose to believe that I am deeply loved and that my God is infinitely trustworthy. That the gospel is beautifully true and my, my future is super bright. That's what joy does. It says God is faithful and he will do all that he's promised to do. So right now, even though I feel crippled and paralyzed by my suffering, I choose joy. So why should we rejoice? Peter tells us. Well, first, in addition to the reality that we've already looked at, that God uses our suffering redemptively, that it has a purpose, Peter also says that our suffering connects us to Jesus through the experience of his presence. Now let me unpack that for a minute. In the next sentence, he's going to talk about being insulted for the name of Christ. John, uh, Jesus promised us this in John 15. He says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. See, if you were of this world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of this world, because I chose you out of this world, therefore the world hates you. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying, because of your identification and connection to me, all that hate that the world has for me, they're going to transfer that to you. Being insulted is rooted to our connection to Jesus. And so as we share in the sufferings of Christ, Peter says that there's a, uh, a bond that we share with Christ that is a ground for rejoicing. It's a reason to rejoice. Have you ever gone through something really hard with someone? And that shared hard experience bond you to that person. Maybe even before you weren't really friends, but you went through something hard together. And, and afterwards, there was just a bonding connection that wasn't there before that, that's like real and it's strong and it's deep. So I grew up in Houston, Texas. 
And I remember going through two-a-day preseason workouts with my football team in high school. How many of you ever been to, to Houston in August? I don't recommend it. It's miserable. If you want to know what hell might feel like, that's it. It's 101 degrees, humidity levels like 90%. I'm actually sweating now just thinking about it. Now, the football team had a lot of different people from different social circles. But after that workout, after those two weeks of of two-a-days, it didn't matter who you were friends with before. It didn't matter your social circles. If you went through preseason together, it bonded you in a way that, that, that wasn't there before. Now, you might experience it maybe in work. You have a difficult project. It took a lot of time and a lot of extra hours. But afterwards, your team was stronger together um, because of it. Uh, you see this through in, in the military. There's a bond because you go through hard things um, together. I've seen mothers. Just, like, like The moms just like look at each other and there's a bond because it's like, I, I know what you went through, right? Hard things bond people together. And Peter says... When you experience suffering because of your identification and connection to Jesus, it bonds you to him in a way that nothing else does. And he also says, in addition to that bond, comes with the experience of the Spirit of God resting on us. There's another truth all throughout the Bible that God draws near to the brokenhearted. You can trace this theme all through the Bible. Where you find vulnerable people, you will see the presence of God. Psalm 34, verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3 to 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this. The Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Who does what? Comforts us in all our affliction. So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Hear what he's saying there? God is the father of all mercy. Comfort was his idea. And when we're brokenhearted, God comforts us. And particularly when we share in the sufferings of Christ. So if you put all of that together, Peter is saying... As you experience suffering, you should rejoice. Why? First of all, knowing God is at work in you. So if you're experiencing suffering and you're a child of God, you should know God has a purpose for this. He's going to do something with this. And that hard experience bonds you to Christ in a way like nothing else does. And God is drawing near to you with his presence. The Father of mercy, the God of all comfort, he himself will comfort you in your affliction. And Peter says, that's a reason to rejoice. Now, hear me. You won't do this accidentally. No one rejoices in sufferings by chance or by accident. See, in the moment of suffering, your default is towards misery, despair, and pain. The only reason you will find yourself rejoicing is because prior to the moment of suffering... You've stored this truth in your heart and you've made a decision. Lord, the next time I walk down the road of pain and suffering, I am going to choose joy. I am going to reflect on your past faithfulness to me. I'm going to reflect on your future grace coming to me and I will choose joy. Charles Spurgeon, again, is worth quoting. 
Speaking of suffering, he said this, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. What is he saying? Waves of suffering that, 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 that knock you into the rock and it's painful, you realize that it brings you closer to Jesus. Because nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love of Christ. And because suffering actually draws you into closer fellowship with him, there is reason to rejoice. Speak to any mature Christian on the back end or reflecting on years of suffering and they will all say the same thing. It was incredibly difficult. I would never choose it to go through it. I wouldn't have even chose to go through it on my own. I wouldn't even choose what I'd gone through to my worst enemy. But, and there's always that but, but the fellowship and connection I experienced to Jesus through that was worth it. The only people who can say those kinds of things are Christians. In our suffering, remember, God is for us, not against us. Suffering is purposeful, not meaningless. Rejoice in suffering, don't despair. Next lesson, suffering leads to glory, not shame. Suffering leads to glory, not shame. Verse 15, Peter says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? The righteous is scarcely saved. What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now verse 15, Peter states the obvious. He says, listen, you can't do criminal things like murder and stealing and evil things. Get caught, go to prison and go, man, I'm experiencing heavy persecution right now. Peter says that's lunacy, okay? He even says you can't do pesky, annoying things like meddling. And I love that. This just kind of covers like you can't be a busybody. You can't be um, annoying and say well, I'm receiving persecution for that. No, Peter's saying those are evil things. Don't do them. But you're, if you're actually suffering for being a Christian, if the persecution you're experiencing is because of your faith, then Peter says glorify God that you bear such a name. In other words, you bear the name of Christ. It's like what he was saying in John 15. The, the world took all of its hatred for, for him and put it on you. If you bear the name Christian and you are being persecuted because of that faith, Peter says that's actually an opportunity to glorify God. Paul agrees with Peter, 2 Timothy 3, 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This is one of those verses that we wish wasn't there, right? Now, that doesn't mean go looking for it. There are some really jerkish Christians who go looking for persecution. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying be antagonistic. What it means is that eventually the values, beliefs, and practices of being a Christian will at some point directly oppose the values, beliefs, and practices of this world. At some point, and at some point, someone's going to take notice and there will likely be some kind of persecution. When we choose to identify with Jesus and stand firm for him, Peter says you can expect suffering. Now, when that happens, when, when we're being persecuted by others, one of the, the first knee-jerk reactions is to experience shame. 
Shame is a communal term. Shame is how I feel based on uh, the, the, uh, what other people think about me. It's always in relationship to others. And Peter's saying, don't let what they think, don't let what they say, don't let their demeaning look, don't let that put shame on you. Instead, glorify God. It leads to glory. Peter says, you don't need to pursue vengeance you don't need to pursue vindication because ultimately God's judgment will fall and he will sort it out in the end. See, if you've been tracking with Peter throughout the letter, you know that he, he desires for us to live in relationship with others, right? And especially with non-believers. The, the previous chapters um, talk about how we need to be in relationship with non-believers so that we can give a defense for the hope that we have in Christ. We're to be hospitable so that we can welcome others as Jesus welcomes us. But he, this is where he's saying, listen, you can't care more about what other people, what non-Christians think about you than being faithful to Jesus. So you got to live in that tension there. We must, we, Peter's saying you can't value comfort and ease and acceptance by society more than you value pursuing the values and the character of Christ. If we're rejected and persecuted by the world, Peter says, so be it. You've taken his name. You're his beloved. Nothing in the world can compete with the joy of being loved by God and accepted into his kingdom and family. So that's why Peter can say persecution is not an opportunity for shame but for glory. And then trust that the Lord will bring judgment and sort all things out in the end. God is for us, not against us. Suffering is purposeful, not meaningless. Rejoice in suffering, don't despair. Suffering ultimately leads to glory, not shame. Last lesson, very quickly, trust God in your suffering and don't give up. We go back to verse 19. Peter says, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will and trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Peter B., uh, finishes his treatise with a final call to faithful endurance. Listen to me. Suffering is always inconvenient and never comes at a convenient time. It's always painful. It's always a reminder that we live in a broken and sin-soaked world. But at the same time, because the gospel is true, because Jesus has broken the curse of death, by faith we know that every tear will be redeemed. And so Peter says, look, don't lose heart. Don't give up. Don't be paralyzed by anxiety, but rather... Go about the normal, everyday rhythms of grace and faithful living that he's called us to do. What do you do in the midst of suffering? What do you do in the days of joy when you know that suffering might happen? He says, continue to do good and trust your soul to him. It's like those things Peter said last week. Live with self-control and sobriety. Love one another. Extend generous hospitality to your neighbor. Served out of your giftedness to see the kingdom of God come here on earth as it is in heaven. When suffering comes and it knocks you down, he says it's okay to rest up. But Peter says then get back up. Trust the Lord and get back to continuing to doing good, living out your faith. I love how Juan Sanchez summarizes these verses. He says, listen, the creator God is sovereign over all things. And he is faithful in all things. Therefore, we can live as elect exiles. We can live as suffering exiles without surprise or despair, with a joy-filled God-glorifying trust, all the while doing good, no matter what the world may do to us. Seven miles, suffering is not a matter of when, but if. You can't avoid it. 
And the Bible does not demand or encourage a kind of stoic, uh, 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 stoicism that's void of emotion. He doesn't call us to, to, to take all of our energies and efforts to try to mitigate suffering out of our lives. He says, instead, rather, pursue faithfulness. Suffering hurts. Another way to say it is this. 1,948 degrees Fahrenheit is going to burn. Our hope is not in a pain-free life of comfort and ease. Our hope is found in Christ who walks with us through pain and suffering. And when you walk with, with, those, with these lessons in your heart, you will uh, be faithful to the end. Friends, God is for us, not against us. Your suffering is purposeful, not meaningless. Therefore, you can rejoice in suffering and choose not to despair. Suffering is an opportunity for glory, not shame. And at the end of the day, trust God in your suffering. Don't give up. Let's pray.